The people of Israel, being settled in their towns, gathered together into the square before the water gate. They told Ezra to bring the Torah of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. He read from it from early morning until midday. All the people were attentive to the book of the Torah. The scribe Ezra stood on a wooden platform that had been made for the purpose, and Ezra opened the book, standing above all the people, and all the people stood up. All the people wept when they heard the words of the Torah, and he said to them, Go your way, eat and drink, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. two rabbi friends here in Tulsa, Rabbi Charles Sherman, Rabbi Mark Fitzerman. When one goes into the offices, one can see libraries, personal libraries, and each has a long section of books looking sort of like encyclopedias, but they are Talmud, commentary on the scripture. And then another shelf, also Talmud, commentary on the scripture, one is called the Babylonian Talmud, and the other collection, the Jerusalem Talmud. I asked Rabbi Sherman one day, which do you prefer? Do you like one more than the other? And he said, the one from Babylon is really the better of the two, I think, because the best and the brightest did not go home. The best and the brightest had tended to fare better in Babylon. They had worked harder, perhaps had extra skills, and stayed on in Babylon and the next Persian Empire for a thousand years and produced commentary on Scripture. Those who did go home when the Persians overran the Babylonians and told the Jews they could go back to Judah tended to be common folk who had not done well in Babylon and when they got back to Jerusalem, they found a pile of ashes where once Solomon's magnificent temple had stood. Just a pile of ashes where their magnificent palace where Solomon and others had lived once stood. The walls still tumbled down. No gates hanging on the hinges. The city was absolutely vulnerable to anybody and everybody. The Canaanites had reasserted themselves they controlled the best watering holes, the best grazing lands, the most fertile of farming lands. They had the olive groves. They had the vineyards. God saw the desperate plight of his people who had gone home and spoke to the deepest heart of one of his priests named Ezra and told Ezra to go back to Judah and rebuild the temple. And then he spoke to the deepest heart of another very talented Judean who had now become an official in the palace in Persia and said to Nehemiah, You are capable, you are my man, go back to Judah and rebuild the walls of the city and build new gates and hang on the hinges so that my people can be safe while they sleep at night. And both did what the Lord told them. Ezra got the temple rebuilt. Nehemiah got the walls of the city rebuilt. And we come to today's passion. 
This passage today says, Now that the people lived in the towns of Judah, they came together before the water gate. Meaning, they were not on the temple mount so that women and children could participate along with the men. Men, women, and all children old enough to be attentive gathered at the water gate. They had built a platform for the occasion so that they could see and hear the person they wanted to hear and see, and that was Ezra, and they asked him to bring the Torah and read to us. The people asking this, that they be reminded of Torah, many of them had never heard it, and those who had were very old and had not heard it in more than 50 years. Ezra, read us Torah. Three weeks ago, our country dismissed from his responsibility one Navy captain, Owen Honors. He was captain of a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier, dismissed because while he was second officer in command, he had helped put together videos that mostly made fun of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, supporting that position, but ridiculing others who had different ideas. I've not seen those videos, but I read varying accounts. Some called them lewd. Some called them profane. Some called them vulgar. And the only defense any of his friends offered was he was just trying to be one of the guys. Women, showering with women, Men showering with men, all kinds of lewd, profane jokes. Just trying to be one of the guys. And our commander-in-chief said, well, that's not good enough. You went to United States Naval Academy. We moved you up rank by rank by rank. You are now the captain of a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier in the greatest Navy in the world. Being one of the guys is not good enough. Last year, it happened to the United States Army. Our commander in Afghanistan, General McChrystal. And he and his aides let a Rolling Stone reporter tag along with them for almost a month. And they said all kinds of inappropriate things to this reporter about the President of the United States. Now, our country decided at its founding that we didn't want to be a military junta of some kind. We needed an army and time a navy and time an air force, but we wanted the person elected by the people to be the commander-in-chief, the president of the United States. And General McChrystal and his chief aides made disparaging remarks about the president, and he had to go. Other people can do that, but not a general in the army. You just can't do that. You're expected to be more, understand better. You remember when President Nixon was forced out of office and Gerald Ford was was inaugurated? I remember reading that one writer said, well, they've got to remake Gerald Ford. He's been a good old boy. Most of his suits are brown. 
presidents of the United States cannot wear brown suits. He will have to have black suits or navy blue, at least dark gray. He's got to get rid of those off-the-counter, off-the-rack shirts he has. Presidents have to wear French cuffs with cufflinks. He's got to start looking like a president of the United States. When he ran for re-election, he was defeated, of course, and Jimmy Carter won. And Jimmy Carter wanted to convince all Americans that he was just one of us. And so the first times we saw him after he was inaugurated, he had his own garment bag over his shoulder. Remember? They took pictures of him over and over, carrying his own garment bag around. And one of the most important speeches he ever made to this country where he talked about our malaise and we were going to become second-rate, he spoke with a sweater. And Americans said, that's all for you. We want our presidents to look like presidents. We want them to act like presidents. We want them to be more than ordinary. More than ordinary. God's people are supposed to be more than ordinary. The Torah told them how to be more than ordinary, that they were to be holy as their Lord God was holy, that is, set apart, different. Paul would say the same to us Gentile Christians. Do not be conformed, shaped like this world, but be ye transformed, your form, your shape, your behavior, cutting across that of the world, we expect more from you. So Ezra stood and read. To see how long the people stood and listened? From sunrise to noon, six hours, the Torah was read. They believed this scroll was the word of God delivered to them and that it was the key to their understanding who God is, who they are, and how the two are related. We Christians believe the same. We have 27 more books in ours, 27 more that are trying to say to us, this is the way you're supposed to behave. This is who God is. This is who you are. And this is the way you're related to each other. Dr. Douglas Hall is retired now. He taught theology for many years at McGill University in Montreal, Canada. He was asked in his retirement if he would write an article for Christian Century magazine a few weeks ago, and he did. He was writing on this subject of do we give more attention to Christmas and not enough to Easter? And he said, look at the names we give to Mary's baby. More people probably call him Jesus. Jesus is not a Hebrew word. It's not a word Mary would have used. The word was Yeshua, from which we get Joshua. We get our word more from the Greek when the gospel writers were trying to translate Hebrew into Greek, and it came out Jesus, and eventually that was Jesus, a good name. We call him Christ. Christ 
meaning the anointed one, Hebrew Messiah. But Dr. Douglas Hall said, perhaps we've missed the name that he was to be given. It's right there in the Gospels. You shall call him Emmanuel, God with us. And then Dr. Hall said, and I'm paraphrasing, but I think I'm really close here. What that means is that he was born as we are born, and he died as we too shall die. And what that means is you've never had a 2 a.m. darkness that God was not there with you. And you've never had a brilliant sunrise when God was not there with you. The incarnation means what it says. The Almighty chose to come to us in flesh and blood from birth to death. There is no experience you've ever had or shall ever have that God Almighty is not willing to be with you. God with us. Number three. As they listened, they wept. They wept. They, these could have been tears of joy. I mean, they've not heard these words read in 50 years. Many of them have never heard them. They've been born in Babylon. They've never heard these words before. But the scholars I read were unanimous in saying, no, we think the writer here is trying to say they wept because they realized they had come up far short of what Torah was asking of them. They had fallen short. They could now see why God had offered them up to the Babylonians, why God had offered up their cousins to the Assyrians long before that, because they had not kept Torah. They had not done Torah. They were not that holy set-apart people that God had called them to be. A couple of weeks ago, I was reading a review of a new staging of Edward Albee's play, uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? When I was in seminary, one of my professors was Dr. Ronald Sleeth. Uh, you're familiar with the work of his wife, Natalie Sleeth, who wrote the hymn, The Hymn of Promise. Hmm? Uh, in every seed, an apple tree, every bud there is a flower, and so on. Okay, Dr. Ronald Sleeth taught several courses that I chose to take. He worked in the homiletics department, preaching. And one of the courses I took from his leadership was Preaching Values in Contemporary Literature. He thought we should know who Edward Albee was. He really believed Edward Albee had a voice that ought to be heard. And he said to the students, Many of you will not be appointed in big enough cities to have live theater. But you can read a play whether you ever see it or not. In fact, he said, when you read one, you get all the stage directions and everything. You see what the author, playwright, really had in mind. You don't get to hear the voices except as they come into your own mind, heart. Read plays. And then a few years later, of course, Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor made Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And they were having so much of this screaming and yelling, ranting and raving and drunkenness in their own marriage that, well, it 
weakened the play a little, I think. It is an interesting play. You remember there are only four characters, one older couple, one younger. George may be the principal character. George is a history professor in a small college up in New England. His wife's name is Martha. Martha and George have gone to a party one night. And before the evening's over, they turn to a younger couple and invite them to stop by their house for drinks afterward. And so the four of them end up in one house together, drinking. One of the interesting things about the play, the way Edward Albee wrote it, is that they don't all get drunk at the same time. One gets drunker before the other three, and then number two, then number three, and finally number four. They're finally all drunk at the end, but in the beginning, just the one who's drunk is confessing all kinds of things, but not one's own sins nearly so much as confessing the sins of the others. And George's wife, Martha, is pointing out every fault he's ever had in his life. And what a loser she really thinks he is, that he's really achieved so little in his life. And he lashes out at her because he's pretty sure she's right. And only in their drunkenness do they fess up all of this, this angst that's deep down in their gut. They really take it out on each other. And then the younger couple, you know, move along with the drunkenness as well, and all sorts of things between, begin to happen uh, among the four of them. It's an interesting play. But I want you to hear this line. You know, almost no one is really normal. Almost no one is really normal. Well, guess what? The Bible is asking us to be more than normal. The Bible says, yeah, most people are normal. They make the same mistakes, and they make them over and over and over again. The world is terribly normal. But that's not what God created people to be, normal. Unless normal would be honoring the Lord your God with all of your heart and mind and soul and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. If everyone would do that so that it became normal, that would be wonderful. But in fact, that's not the way most people live, and that's not the what, what most people call normal. They call bad behavior normal, self-centeredness normal, and that's not what God had in mind. And they got it. They got that. So they wept. Number four. Ezra says, wait. Wait. Torah is not a reason for weeping. Torah is supposed to help you come to fullness and meaningfulness and purpose in your life. You're supposed to walk away from Torah reading with joy in your heart. Go, eat, drink, and share. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. John Kralik's life was going in all the wrong directions. He had been married. It had ended in a really nasty divorce. 
But he wanted to be married, so he found a second person and thought this was the one for sure. He would be happy forever and ever. And it ended in just as big a mess as the first marriage had. Another painful divorce. He's so centered on all these personal problems he's got that the law firm where he's a principal is beginning to fail. And he knows himself to be a lousy father. And so a little more than a year ago, he tried to figure out what he had been taught when he was a boy that he had not taken seriously. What had he missed? Could it really be as simple as he remembered it being described to him? That if you put yourself in the center, you're going to lose it all? And if you take self out of the center and you put God in the center and you put the other into the center, it suddenly becomes as wonderful as you were always told? Is it true that God wants to help you succeed? That He's given each one of His children different talents? And by the developing of those talents, that person makes a contribution to the well-being of all the rest of us? You probably would not believe that when I was growing up, I was very shy. I was very shy. You can look at my pictures when I was in the first grade, second grade, third grade. I was shy. I was poor. My father worked hard for a little tiny natural gas company. The landowners made a lot of money. The people who worked for the companies, not much at all. I rode a school bus 12 years when I started, other kids in town had blue jeans. Country kids had striped overalls. When I was in high school, other kids had cars. I rode the school bus 12 years. I was shy. In the eighth grade, my mother asked me one night, would you read a book? I just read a book that I thought was wonderful. It was Norman Vincent Peale's Power of Positive Thinking. Now, there were a lot of preachers that put that book down. Ah, uh, Peel just means if you have a positive attitude, everything goes well. They didn't read Peel. Peel had already talked about one's relationship with God and how one comes to right relationship, how one is set right with God only by the mercies of God, by God's grace. Peel had dealt with that. Now, can you take a new look at yourself and see yourself as a child of God whom God wants to help succeed? God wants to help you do well with whatever talent group you've been given. He said, emphasize what you do well. So I sat down and thought, gee, I'm a good student. I'd always made A's. I can be an even better student. I would like to be a leader. What if I tried out for the student council? What if I put my name up for election? What would happen? I really wanted to be an athlete in a little town. Athletes are very important people. My little high school down in Texas just won the state championship for the third year in a row in football. Football is important in Carthage, Texas. Still is. They had chartered buses going from Carthage, Texas to Jerry World in Arlington, Texas to see this little high school team play in the state championship. It's big time in Carthage if you can play football. 
And after I read that book, I geared up my courage and walked into the coach's office who had been telling me for three years, you're too little, you're too little, you're too little. And I said, what can I do to change that? And he told me what to eat, starting with breakfast, lunch, dinner, how many miles I would need to run, how many weights I would need to lift. And I became a player. My ninth grade year, the faculty voted me one of the six outstanding students in all of junior high school. My junior and senior year, both years, I was voted by the faculty one of the top ten students of all of our high school. I was captain of our football team because I heard what Peel was trying to say. God loves you. Can you believe that? God loves you, and God wants to help you with whatever talents you have. Let's look at your talents. I read, read Dale Carnegie. Instead of walking into a room with your head hanging down, nobody would be interested in you. Think of something really funny just before you walk in the room. Think of something really happy just before you walk into the room and walk in with your face up and a smile on your face. The most important name to anybody in the world is his or her own name. Most important sound, calling a person's name, trying to say, I see you, I know you, you're important to me. Well, let's get back to John Kralik. Life falling apart, trying to figure out where did I miss the point? What does it mean to take yourself out of center, put somebody else in? So he sat down January the 1st. He didn't send an email. He didn't do Facebook. He didn't Twitter. He took a piece of paper and a pen and an envelope and a 44-cent stamp and wrote a note to someone thanking that person for something he or she had done for him. January 2nd, thought of someone else, wrote a note, January 3rd, January 4th, January 5th, January 6th and 7th. Sometimes it was a person who poured his cup of coffee, a paper boy who avoided the puddle of water outside his door guy that cut his hair. Didn't have to be huge. Write a personal note on a piece of paper, put it in an envelope, put a stamp on it, and send it to the person. September 30, October 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, November 30, December 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, December 29, 30, 31, and then he wrote a book. 365 thank yous that changed my life. What I'd been taught was right. I just had to do it. Go. Eat. Drink. And share with those who do not have. 